chapter 5 this morning. Jesse, um, can you bump me up a little bit on the computer volume? I'm feeling like I have to push too much, and then I'll go hoarse about 10 minutes in, which you may, you may be happy about. So Hebrews chapter 5. Okay, so last week we looked at, and, and we've been going through the book of Hebrews and, and seeing that, that essentially the, the writer is unknown, but he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians. These are, uh, many of them call themselves Messianic Jews. Uh, many of them call themselves completed Jews. Essentially, they had been given the covenant. They believed and followed Abraham's teachings. They followed the Ten Commandments. They followed all the writings and the prophets. And they were always looking for this Messiah that would fulfill and complete really what God had started. But many of them, when they saw Jesus, they were like, this guy cannot be the fulfillment because he's not tall and handsome like we would want a king to be. He's not uh, necessarily even super good looking. He's just this Jewish boy that was born in a small town and he came out of nowhere and we thought that he would come on the scene as like this, this like, hey, I'm going to take things over. You know, I'm going to rescue my people from oppression. I'm going to be their deliverer, their redeemer. And I'm going to waylay all the other countries that are oppressing my people. But Jesus didn't come the first time as a uh, reigning king. He didn't come uh, ready to knock down his foes. What he came to deal with was sin. And, and so that from our perspective, many times we look at Jesus and we go, if I was God and I was going to send a representative he would not be humble. He would be like laying down the law. And yet what Jesus came first to do was to come in humility and fulfill and do everything that his father gave him to do to fulfill the law and to die on behalf of the sins of mankind and then to offer them grace and mercy so that they could be brought back into relationship with him. And so last week we talked about this aspect of Jesus being greater than any high priest. Now, many of you might have uh, some Catholic background, but you know the, the idea of a priest in the New Testament is actually not for individuals that have taken a vow of celibacy and wear a certain uh, collar or anything like that. The New Testament actually teaches that we as believers are called to be a priesthood. Now, for many of us, we're thinking, well, that, I, that's weird because I'm not a priest. But the reality is, as, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we now represent man to God. We can intercede for people that do not know Jesus. We can pray for those that are sick. We can uh, do what the high priest used to do. And at the same time, we are also able to then represent God to man. We can be his mouthpiece. We can speak the things that he would say to others based on what his word tells us. And so this is totally different. So in Matthew chapter 5, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 5, it says there, uh, every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself has also made himself subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. But we talked about how Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins like the high priest would because he never sinned. And in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed not through just a veil like they did in the temple, 
but has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have a high priest who is in all points tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. He was without sin. He says, because of this fact, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. If you were an Israelite, if you were a Jewish follower of Abraham, you could never enter into the presence of God. It was not allowed for anybody except the high priest. And yet because Jesus has passed through the heavens on our behalf, has been our sacrifice, he has opened the veil. When he said it is finished, when he was being crucified, miraculously, the veil between the outer temple court and the inner holy of holies where the presence of God was, there was a veil there, and it was, many believe that, and, and, and actually historic writings from Josephus say that the thing was almost 12 inches thick. It was not like a sheet like we have in our house, we're just hanging up. It wasn't like curtains that we might have over our, our windows that are even thick. It was almost a foot thick by the time you got to it. And so when the veil was torn between man's position and the place that only the high priest could go, it was torn, it says, from top to bottom. And it wasn't like you just reach up like right here and get on a small ladder and tear it down. It was too high for a ladder. When they installed it, they had to get special equipment to get up there. My point being is that God is the one that tore it. He tore it down, that middle wall of separation between us and God, so that now we are offered the ability to come straight into his throne room. We have access. Now, how many of us have full access to our bosses, let alone God, you know. Now, my, the owner of our company has an open-door policy, but there are times where the doors close, and I can't just bust in anytime I want. I have to get an appointment. But with Jesus and what he has done, no appointment needed. Anytime. Come on in. And he's like a dad that longs to see his kids. He's sitting in there, and if he's doing something, and his kids bust in on him, He's not like me, where I'm like, I'm in the middle of something. He's just, come on in. And we can jump up in his lap, and what Scripture says we call him Abba Father, which in our translation, for us, is like when our kids call us Daddy. And, and that's just an intimate thing. My daughter calls me Daddy, and it melts me. Jesus is no different, except he never gets impatient. And so Paul sums this idea up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm just going to read it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 6, but really in verse 5 there it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so there was one man that can represent you to God, and there is one man who can represent God to you, and that should be Jesus alone. And so we get this idea of a high priest, and Jesus really fills the bill better than any high priest ever did in Israel's history. So in this case, he's talking about the, the, the high priest, and he, he talks about how you know, he is really not according to the line of the Levites, which every high priest had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, there were certain people from the tribe of Levi that could be the high priest, 
and there were certain people from the tribe of Judah that could be the king. King David was from the tribe of Judah. So there were only certain people that could actually fill the bill. They had to be from a certain tribe. But what we find out is that Jesus is not a high priest according to the order of Levi or Aaron, the descendants of Aaron, but he's a, he's a high priest according to this mystical character that we read about in Genesis called Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And he was actually a high priest representing God to man before the law was ever written in Exodus. Before God ever gave the law to Moses, we have this high priest that comes on the scene and ministers there to Abraham. And Abraham actually, he has communion with him. They sit down and they have bread and they have wine. And then after that, they, Abraham actually gives him a tithe of his increase. So he pays offering, he pays 10% of his income to this Melchizedek. But as this writer wants to describe the ministry and the descendants of Melchizedek, he stops in verse 11 and he says this. What's up, dog? He didn't say what's up, dog. Um, but he says this in verse 11. Of, sorry. Where is it? I know it's, oh, I'm in Timothy. That would help. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 5, he says, um, I would like, I have much to say about this, and he, he's talking about Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain. Now, there are many things that are in the Bible that are hard to explain. I, I spend a lot of time studying the Word of God. I've been reading it for the last 12 years. From the time I became a Christian until now, I've been reading God's Word through every year, and there are lots of stuff I still don't get. But I want to point out that if God could be understood just by reading it and moving on, I don't think that he would be God. I think that he would, you know, we can't even explain ourselves to other people within just a few conversations, can we? I've been married seven years, and my wife will still look at me and say, who are you? And frankly, I don't even know, so I don't know how to tell her. But God is, is able to be found out. He's able to be understood, but it takes time, it takes effort. Just like every relationship takes effort. In order for it to be a flourishing relationship, it takes time and effort. And so he wants to talk about this Melchizedek and how it ties into the fact that Jesus is a descendant and he is a high priest according to the line of Melchizedek. But he says, I find it hard to explain. But I want to point out, he's not saying it's hard to explain because I don't get it. He's saying it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He speaks to his audience. He says, it's hard to explain because you guys just haven't been digging in, and so there's no context for you to understand the things I'm going to explain. And so he goes on to this point, and he says in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you're still needing someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. And so he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, by those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. And so he starts talking about this full age, and he talks about how they are dull of hearing. So I think I skipped ahead. What does it mean to be dull of hearing? Well, I looked it up, and it actually means to be a lazy listener. It doesn't mean that they're not hearing the words that he's saying. 
it means that they're becoming lazy and they're not digging any further. And Paul wrote about the Thessalonian church that they were actually, or the Berean church. There was a church in Berea that he commended. He said, he said that they were more noble than any of the other places that he had gone and preached about Jesus because they didn't just hear what he said and go, okay, we believe it. But they said, okay, we hear you, but we're going to go home and study it on our own. I think a lot of the problems in our modern day church doesn't have to do with necessarily the truth not being taught, although that is the case in a lot of cases, but it has to do with the fact that, that people are just eating things and they're not paying attention to what they're eating spiritually. And, and I say that because um, I was just talking with Seth Tarver yesterday, and he's the missionary that is down for the weekend. He, I didn't have him come speak because I thought maybe on Fall Festival it might be a little bit of a conflict of interest for a lot of you, you know, being able to come on a Saturday night. Maybe it was just a lack of faith on my part. But he said that many Mormons that, oh, sorry, sorry context. He moved to Utah to plant a church in an area that is 2% professing Christian, and 98% Mormon. And so he's moved there, and he said that it's actually unfruitful for, to, for him to know every Mormon doctrine because most Mormons don't actually know all the things that their church teaches. They're just taught things and told, you got to believe them. And what's crazy is that they're kind of, in a way, they got kind of their own pope who can actually get revelation from God and change their doctrines overnight, and then they're told to believe that. So he said it's actually unfruitful for him to know every little doctrine that they believe. It's actually better for them just to know Jesus in truth, and then be able to explain Jesus, the real Jesus, not the one that they teach in their five books of Scripture. And so um, the idea is, is that I think sometimes as Christians, we just, uh, even though we know we can't trust just anybody, we trust a lot of people and we don't dig into what they teach us and actually try to tell whether or not something's good for them. Uh, the same idea would be saying, well, I just eat whatever the FDA says is okay. Now, in a lot of cases, you'll be fine, right? But in a lot of cases, not so much, you know? And so the idea is we wouldn't do that physically. Why are we doing that spiritually? So he says, pay attention. You know, and, and he said the Bereans were more noble because they didn't just take what he said and go, okay, we believe it, but they actually went back to their homes, opened up their Bibles and said, are these things actually true? Let me test what Paul has said and, and test it according to what God's word says because we don't have a prophet that can change it at any point. Jesus Christ is the final word and his word does not change. And so he, they're not willing to dig into it for themselves and in really many cases, they're trying to be secondhand Christians. Now, secondhand always in my mind brings up the idea of being a secondhand smoker. I was growing up in a house where we'd be eating breakfast and watching KSDK news, and we'd be chewing with them, our, our mouths open because we couldn't breathe because Dad was smoking right there at the table with us. That just is how it was, we, you know. And and I remember one morning distinctly, we were sitting there as there was a newscast. It used to just be news. It wasn't opinion. And they were telling a study about how they're finding out that secondhand smoke was actually worse for people than firsthand smoke. So I was like, well, how does that work? They're sucking it all in, and I'm just getting a portion of it. But I remember at the time, being young, I didn't ever go like, Dad, quit smoking. You're killing me. But I was thinking it. Like, hey, this is really bad for me. Why are you? But 
the idea is, is that Christianity cannot be taken secondhand. There are no secondhand Christians. Uh, I think many of us, if we're not careful, we start to depend on the pastor or the thing we hear on the radio or what somebody else heard from God. And when all along the while, God wants us as individuals to come to him on our own and to hear what he has to speak to us individually, first person. And so we got to be careful that we're not lazy listeners just taking for granted that whatever someone else is telling me is, is what I need to be hearing. Uh, so they were not carving out time to do so on their own. It wasn't a priority. And I put there for you, it wasn't a priority for them in practice. I know many believers that love Jesus have no doubt they're going to heaven. But they, they don't make Jesus the number one priority. And so many times they, they want to grow closer to the Lord, but they're not doing what it takes in practice to do so. So he says, I want to explain to you the things about Melchizedek, uh, but you've become dull of hearing. And so then he goes on. Can you click that window, Jesse? For whatever reason, my deal's not working. There we go. So signs of spiritual immaturity. He's pointed out that some of them are spiritually immature. Now, who among us likes to be called immature? Yeah, me neither. Uh, but God graciously lists here through the pen of the author uh, the signs that we are spiritually immature. So I thought I would be amiss if it, I did not at least uh, go over them with a cursory glance. So in verse 11 through 14, he points out some signs of being immature Christians. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers, yet you're not. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, the foundational truths. So they can't remember the fundamentals. Now, how many sports do you know that if the players don't pay attention to the fundamentals, they also don't play good in the game? You know, whether it's running, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, the fundamentals are what makes a good player, you know? And I, I, I'm going to say this because Steven's not here, but you ever notice he is literally always pitching a baseball during baseball season. He won't have a baseball in his hand, but he's literally practicing his form all the time. When he's playing basketball, he's always shooting hoops. I don't know where the goal is. I don't know where the ball is. But he is always thinking about basketball. He's practicing his form. Pitching's no different. And so the fundamentals make a good player. And many times I think we forsake the fundamentals. We want to get good at the better stuff, but we forsake the fundamentals. He says, so you don't even remember the fundamentals, and you're having to be taught them over and over and over again. Now, I wasn't raised in church. But when I first started walking with Jesus and I, invite, I was invited by friends to go to church services, I would go to wherever people would invite me because I was just hungry. And I know so many churches that every week to the congregation that is already walking with Jesus, it's just a gospel message. There's nothing more. It's, we're going to preach the gospel again. And most of the people become dull of hearing because they've heard it before. Okay, I'm a believer. I'm sealed for heaven. I believe in Jesus. I'm repenting of my sins, but how do I live now? It's great that I'm going to heaven, but how am I supposed to live in my everyday life now? How am I supposed to interact with my family? How am I supposed to work unto the Lord? You know, all the other things that I do with my life, if it's just a salvation message every week, it's just really the same message over and over again. We're going over the fundamentals constantly. How do I grow deeper in my walk with Christ? And so he says, you, you've forgotten the fundamentals, 
but you have to be taught again, over and over again. And then he says that you're not able to lead others to Jesus for salvation. And you're not able to lead others to Jesus for salvation or to follow your example. Uh, You've become those who are hearers of the word and not doers. That's what James writes. And then you're also able, or excuse me, as an immature believer, not able to discern between good and evil. You're still somewhat spiritually blind. And so this is a problem because if you're walking with Jesus and, and he is the light of the world and yet you're not able to tell the difference between good and evil, then has he really benefited you at all? And so he, he says you, you're, you're dull of hearing and because you're dull of hearing, we have to go over again the foundations. He says, let us go on. He says, therefore, leaving the discussion in verse one of chapter six, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Now, the word perfection doesn't mean that you are perfect. It actually just means maturity or wholeness. Christ wants to make you whole. He doesn't want to leave you immature. Did you notice in the last passage, he says, you've come to need milk and not solid food. Now, physically, if someone brings their child that's five years old to the hospital and says, my child's not growing. One of the, some of the first questions they're going to ask, what do they eat? What kind of food are they intaking? And if they're only drinking milk all the time, their growth's going to be stunted. Milk is great for babies. Actually, it makes them real fat and chubby, and they get those cheeks and the big legs, and th- that's a sign of a healthy baby. But if they get up to five years old and they're still only eating or drinking milk, there's a problem. Not only is their growth going to be stunted, but they're going to be unhealthy. They need proteins. They need to be able to use those teeth. And so he says meat is for those who are growing and are healthy. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So is he, is he talking about our physical diet? No. He's actually talking about our spiritual intake. So if you can't ever get past the original things of repentance and faith and salvation you never get to the meat and i don't know about you guys but i like meat i love meat i like to smoke it i like to grill it i like to fry it that's why i'm going to go spend time in the cold woods and try to shoot something that has meat on it because i want to eat meat Uh, but how many times as believers are we content with milk and yet we're missing out on the meat solid food he says verse 14 belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. So the word of God is that food, the bread of life, and it's, it's actually meant for us to practice our faith. You know, and, and I think sometimes we get bogged down in failure, and he doesn't say be perfect, he says exercise your senses in walking by faith, not your eyes, ears, nose, and mouth, but exercise your senses of, of walking with Christ by using God's word to be a lamp unto your feet, to be a light unto your path, to be your instruction for daily life. Um, and, and, you know, you've heard the acronym, I'm sure, Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. These words are given to us as instructions to live in this world 
to live for the next. And so he calls them to maturity. He says, verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of these foundational principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he talks about what are the foundational elements of the faith. And, and I think it's important that we know them. He even lists them here. He says, I'm not going to talk about them, but here they are. So let's take a moment. What are the fundamentals? He says, repentance from dead works. What does that mean? Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to earn God's favor. You can't do it. Jesus prayed. Jesus, God's own son, was just burdened. And he, he knew he was getting ready to be beaten to death. He knew that he was going to have people lash him to the point where you could see his, his inward flesh, his, his ribs and his, his innards. He knew that was getting ready to happen. He knew he was going to be nailed to a big tree and killed for the salvation of mankind. And he, he prayed in his humanity. He said, Lord, Father, if there's any other way that men can be saved, please show me because I don't want to go through this. But he said, not my will be done, but yours. So Jesus' prayer was, God, if there's any other way that mankind can be saved, then show me now so I don't have to go through this. I meant that. But, and, and what happened? Did, did God stop him from being put to death on the cross? No. Which his answer to prayer was, there's no other way. So if Jesus, the Son of God, didn't get a different answer in prayer, you and I will never get another answer in prayer. We will not be able to say, hey, my good outweighed my bad. Not going to happen. Because even Isaiah wrote, Maybe it's Jeremiah, can't remember. But he said that our best day, our, all of our works are like filthy rags. And not to be brutal, but the word there for filthy rags actually means dirty menstrual cloth. That's how filthy they are to God. When we try to prove ourselves to God, it is nasty to him. Like that would be to us. And so he says, repentance from dead works. If you are trying to earn God's favor, stop. And ask him to forgive you for that, because even that is an evil work. And then he says, faith towards God. So repentance from dead works means that we have to find something else to trust in for God to be able to accept us. And that becomes faith towards God. Repenting of dead works, and then trusting in God's works. And he talks about teaching on baptisms. Now you might say, what baptisms? Why, is there multiple talking about the baptism that we experience when we submit ourselves to being plunged under the water, that type of death, burial, and resurrection into new life. And we do that by faith. It's an act of obedience. Christ submitted himself to baptism. But then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where God not only calls us to a new life, but then he pours out his very likeness, his character, his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He calls us to that, but he doesn't say, do it on your own. He gives us his spirit. He pours it out on us so that those things will come through us. They'll start to manifest. We will become like our Father who's in heaven. 
And he talks about the laying on of hands being a basic element. And it's really just the laying on of hands for prayer, the laying on of hands for, for calling, what God's called us to. And sometimes just the laying on of hands for being able to deal with the things that we go through with in life, just to have prayer over us. The resurrection of the dead. Now, for the Hebrew believers, the, the Hebrews believed in the resurrection of the dead. You know, uh, Jesus came up and Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb for several days. And they said, and, and she said, he's not dead. Or Jesus spoke to Mary and Martha and said, he's not dead. And she goes, well, of course we know that he'll be resurrected on the day of resurrection. And what they didn't know is Jesus was getting ready to bring him back to life right then. They, they didn't quite understand what he came to do. Um, but the resurrection of the dead was believed by Jewish believers. And we are taught that there is a day that all men will be raised from the dead, not just the righteous, but the righteous and the unrighteous, that there is no soul sleep. When it's over, it's not like going to bed and never waking up, that we will live eternally, our souls. And so the resurrection of the dead, the righteous will be raised. We will see Jesus face to face. He'll say, enter in, good and faithful servant. And for those who are unrighteous, those who are rebelling against God, those who are unrepentant, who refuse to receive the gift, guess what? They're raised to the white throne judgment where all of their deeds, those who trusted in their deeds, will have the opportunity to say, here I am. Look at all this good stuff I did. Look how much this bad, but look at how much this good, you know, and that outweighs it. And at that point, he goes, okay, you're trusting in your works for salvation? Let's judge them. But he judges the motives behind them. He judges the works themselves. And when they don't measure up, you know, it's, it's over. And there's eternal separation from God, which is actually what those who rebel and refuse to receive his grace have proved that they've wanted their whole life. And so he gives them what they want, separation from him. And then there's eternal judgment. He said these are all basic tenets of faith in Christ. But he says let's move on to the greater things. So verse uh, 3, he says uh, this we will do if God permits. Today, in our case, God permitted, so I talked about it. But in verse 4, he goes on, he says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So this is a difficult passage, I'm not going to lie, because there's a lot here. But what he's saying in verse 4 through 6 is that it's impossible for those who have received the resources available from God to every man or woman willing to receive them. It is impossible for them to partake in all of these and miss or reject Jesus. It's impossible. So he's not saying that it's impossible. And there's lots of things that he is saying. He's saying that if you have partaken of, these are all, you know, if you're going out hiking, you take resources with you. You take food, you take water, 
You take, uh, you make sure you get rest the night before you prepare yourself. You take a first aid kit in case you get hurt. You take everything you need for the trip. What he's saying is it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. So if you're in Christ, he opens the eyes of your heart. That's what Ephesians teaches. He gives you sight to see things beyond the physical that we can see right now. He says, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, the heavenly gift being salvation, Jesus. The psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, uh, and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. No one receives the Holy Spirit except those who have received Christ. And then as a free gift, Jesus said, I'm going to pray to the Father that he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would, who would uh, convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit is given to us to empower us to live by faith and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Those who have been given gifts from on high, from heaven. Those who have tasted the good word of God, the bread from heaven, and have partaken of it, and it's been nourished by it. It is impossible for them who have received all these things, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So I believe that there's a warning here. For those who receive the word of God, to whom much is given, much is required. If we've heard the word of God and if we've believed it and then choose by our own free will that God gives us to say, no more Jesus, I'm done. It's, I, I'm done. He's let me down in this area. He didn't fulfill what my expectation in this area. And I'm just not going to follow him anymore. He says it's impossible for that person. It'd be like someone who has partaken of this, had been given feeling through their fingers and then put their hand on a hot iron and burned away all the nerves that are in those hands to then be renewed to repentance because it's going to be that much easier for them not to repent the next time. Now, I don't know where you stand doctrinally on that, but I take that as a pretty solemn warning. He says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they essentially call God a liar and they blaspheme against him. He says it's they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and they put him to open shame. They're essentially saying that what Jesus did wasn't necessary, and, it, and it's a lie that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. But then he goes on to say, the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. So there's two types of soil mentioned here. Uh, both partake of the same rain, the same benefit. Soil needs rain and it needs nutrients in it, but if it doesn't get water, nothing's going to grow, right? If you plant a garden and you never water it and it never rains, it won't grow. It might kind of sprout out and then die. But he says there's another kind of soil that if it receives the same rain and it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and it's near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. And if you've ever had a garden or if you've ever had a field that you've had thorns and briars, maybe you've gone out there and you've clipped everything out and maybe sometimes you do a controlled burn where you just start burning off all the plant life that's there in the hopes that what will return is actually the stuff you want to grow. He said, so both soils, they both receive the benefit from God, the rain. 
And yet, if the soil produces good fruit, it receives blessing from God. And if the soil produces bad fruit or briars and weeds, it's burned. So in likewise, those who benefit from God's gifts, whether it's the Holy Spirit, the the Word of God, the, the testimony, they receive all this blessing if they hear what God has to say to them, and yet they produce works that are actually thorns and briars and and junk and weeds, um, they're not going to receive blessing from God. And so his point is that we need to be careful that we do receive the word of God and let it have its full effect so that we're not um, putting Jesus to open shame. But look at this, verse 9. And I I put a couple of references there for you, and I'm not going to get into them today for... for, uh, time's sake, but if you write those down and look at them later, it's interesting how, how often Jesus talked about soil and the produ- fruit that it produces. And for time's sake, I will go to one of them, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew 7, verse 15. I am not good at Bible drill. Verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. Now for us as Christians, what's good fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He says, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So he talks about these people who were supposed to know the word of God, but it says there, you will know them by the fruit, not what they profess to be, but what they produce. If an apple tree could talk and it said, I'm an apple tree, or, sorry, if an apple tree could talk but said, I'm a peach tree, and yet it grew apples every year, you'd be like, you're a liar. You know, but how many people profess to know Christ and yet they'll tell you that and you're like, I'm looking at the fruit here and I'm seeing otherwise. Now, you know, we need to make sure that we're judging ourselves. We're not judging them. We're just inspecting the fruit and we're called to be discerning in that, knowing good from evil. But continuing on in verse 9, after this pretty stout warning about the fruit that's produced from our lives, he says this to the believers. He's writing to believers. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. There's a strong warning here, but he says, we're confident in you, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love. Now, wait a minute. They've produced work. Didn't he say to repent from evil works? Well, here's the deal. Works don't earn us salvation. And we can spend our whole lives trying to earn God's favor. But salvation is accompanied by good works. So he's not saying earn salvation. He's saying we can tell that you're following Jesus because there are good works that naturally sprout from you. Just like if an apple tree is planted and it's healthy and it's abiding in the ground, and there's water received, and it produces apples, it's going to naturally do that because it's an apple tree. It's not sitting there going, I 
fuck, I'm not going to produce apples. It just sits there, takes in the nutrients, takes in the rain, and just bees what it is. It bees what it is. Hey, Farmington right there. Went to Farmington. That's my education. So he goes on to say, God's not unjust to forget your good works that you have shown towards his name in that you have, look at this, ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, that lazy listener idea, but you imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. We're going to stop there. But there was already visible fruit in their lives. And I'm thinking that the writer saw that they had forgotten that God was producing good fruits in their lives. So if you have been walking with Jesus and you're like, I don't know if there's any fruit in my life, ask somebody else that has perspective on your life. Is there fruit in my life? And let them speak into that. Somebody that watches your life, somebody that's around you, because they will have perspective that you don't. Sometimes we beat ourselves up. Sometimes we don't beat ourselves up enough. But sometimes we we just don't have perspective because we're doing it every day. Kind of like when somebody sees your kids after a couple years, they haven't seen them, and you see them every day, and you're like, I don't think that they're getting any more mature. And in our family, I don't think they're getting any taller. They're not going to, right? But but then other people will see them, they're getting so big. They haven't seen him in a while. They have longer perspective. He talks about works that accompany salvation. Uh, but look at this. He says, be just as diligent in your pursuit of God, our only hope, as you are in your labors. Pursue God, and then labors will naturally happen. He says, imitate those who inherited the promises through faith. Read in Scripture the testimonies of those who have walked with Jesus before us by faith. Know their story. See how God worked. And then surround yourself with Christians who actively follow Jesus. Watch them. Ask them to share their testimony of him keeping his promises to them. It will be strengthening. I spent the whole day yesterday with the Tarvers, my wife and I and our children, and I got to hear how God had worked in their lives, and it reminded me of all the things God's already done in my life. It, it spurred me on to keep going. Uh, but also... Um, we need to stick to the fundamentals. So how should this look in my life? How do I progress to maturity? How do I become a a non-lazy listener? Well, after Peter reasoned with the multitude on the day of Pentecost from the scriptures and revealed Jesus to them, their long-awaited Messiah, the church began simply. And that's what we want to be here. We want to have a simple church. I don't want to just have activities, just we're busy. We're already busy, right? But we can do the fundamentals, and that's why we have opportunities for fellowship. We have an opportunity for fellowship. I highly encourage you, be there, because it's faith building. It's one of the four pillars of the early church. Uh, The other thing is prayer. Be in prayer individually, and take opportunities to pray with others. It's faith strengthening. Uh, Number three, um, be in the Word of God as often as you feel fit. If you're hungry, that's a sign that you're healthy. Dig in the Word. Don't find your sustenance on snack cakes and ho-hos. I mean, if you like snack cakes and ho-hos, eat them. But I'm talking spiritually. Don't feed yourself with junk. And uh, number four, breaking of bread. And that's not talking about eating. Although if you're from a Baptist background, that might be your deal. Like, hey, we can't have fellowship without food. 
I love food. But the idea is regularly taking communion is what he's talking about. Remembering that it's all about Jesus. Remembering that none of it's possible without him. These simple pillars of the Christian church are what make the church healthy and mature. Individuals become healthy, mature Christians, and those individuals are bricks in the building of Christ. They build up this body that encapsulates the Holy Spirit that dwells in it, and we become fruitful. And by God's grace, He naturally adds to the church daily those who are being saved through you and I. What it says there is that as they began the church, they regularly got together to study the Word and pray and break bread together and to just be together. We like to produce things, all of us. Sometimes we don't know that there is actually benefit from just being together. Um, but it says there, as a result of those four pillars, God added daily to the church those who received their testimony and believed in Jesus. So, Father, um, I thank you for your word and how I can speak personally on the fact that it's totally transformed my life. It's transformed my wife, it's transforming my children, and it's caused us to live for heaven, but to live here as good citizens. And so I pray for the ability to see how you're working in each other's lives. I pray that we would not become lazy listeners, but that we would be diligent. The fields that produced good fruit in the parable spoken in this passage were not just fields that received the rain, but they were fields that were cultivated and the fields were cultivated by people that benefited from the fruit that was produced from them. And so, Father, feed us by your word. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. And cause us to be diligent listeners so that we can be fruitful for you. For your glory, for your purposes. And how that would change our family dynamics. How that would change the way we interact with bullies at school how that would change how we talk to our boss or how we work for them, how it would change the face of this valley as we know it, if people were living for Jesus and understood who he was, not just by what we say we are, but how we live and love them. So, Father, uh, would you stir us up? Would you use these truths to impact us and for us to impact each other for eternity? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song of worship.